When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, Ray Kinsella, I want to ask you a question. What's so interesting about a half an inning that would make you come all the way from Iowa to talk to me about it 50 years after it happened? I didn't really know till just now, but I think it's to ask you if you could do anything you wanted, if you could have a wish. And are you the kind of a man who could Grant me that wish. I don't know. I'm just asking. Well, you know, I... I never got to bat in the major leagues. I'd have liked to have that chance just once. To stare down a big league pitcher. To stare him down, and just as he goes into his wind-up... Wink. Make him think you know something he doesn't. That's what I wish for. Chance to squint at a sky so blue that it hurts your eyes just to look at it. To feel the tingle in your arm as you connect with the ball. To run the bases, stretch a double into a triple, and flop face first into third. Wrap your arms around the bag. That's my wish, Reconcilla. That's my wish. And is there enough magic out there in the moonlight to make this dream come true? What would you say if I said yes? I think I'd actually believe you. Hello movie viewers and movie lovers, my name is Tim Williams and I'm your host for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast, where we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter what flick we choose from week to week, we'll have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you have seen this heartwarming 80s baseball fantasy flick, you likely have a strong opinion on it. While some are moved by its fantastical and heartfelt story of personal redemption, others dismiss it as over-sentimental and even silly. Or as Richard Corliss of Time Magazine once infamously put it, a male weepy at its wussiest. Either way you look at it, the Oscar-nominated movie still tugs at the heartstrings and makes us rekindle our love for America's pastime. So grab your baseball bat, ball, and glove, and then head to a perfectly good Iowa cornfield as Laramie Wells and I discuss Field of Dreams from 1989 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback. So welcome in, everybody. Glad to have you back on another episode. Excited to talk about this kind of, I guess we say, heartwarming and good old Americana kind of flick from the 80s with uh, Kevin Costner. But glad to have my good friend Laramie Wells back as the co-host. 
How you doing today, Laramie? If it's based on a book, I will come. <laughs> Which was not intentional. Uh, that that's how why he got chose for this uh, episode. But uh, this is true. If it's a, if it's based on a book, Laramie seems, tends to be uh, available and ready to talk about it. So, all right, let's jump right in. When did you see Field of Dreams for the very first time? I I have no idea. I know. <laughs> Uh, again, this is also kind of a thing that always happens to me. I know I probably saw it on television right, first. Right. I know I didn't see it in theaters because, I mean, I was eight when the movie came out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, not something that I'm going, hey, I want to go see this. Yeah. yeah. Um, I actually remember, uh, at least I think I remember this correctly, <laughs> McDonald's one time, like, sold DVDs. I remember that. Yeah. I do remember that. And Field of Dreams was one of those, and I actually think we got it. Okay. Now, whether or not that was the first time I saw it or not, <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I, I, more than likely, I saw it on television first, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. I didn't see this one in the theater that I could remember. I think this is probably one that I rented from the video store like after it had been out. I remember hearing about it. Um I remember seeing the trailer for it, but I remember thinking this didn't seem like something that appealed to me. You know, at that time I was a preteen, so like going into, or see if that was, I was in like middle school or just starting high school. So um, it wasn't, you know, top of the top of the list of the kind of movies that I was looking to watch. So, but I was a fan of Kevin Costner, even at that point, because I'd seen The Untouchables and I was a big fan of that movie. I did not see Bull Durham and I've probably only seen Bull Durham once. And I was not a fan of it when I watched it, so I'm not sure if I'll. I mean, I'm sure I'll watch it again for the podcast, but, uh, but I, but I know he did those two back to back, and we'll go we'll into that as we get into it. So, but yeah, I'm pretty sure I rented it and watched it, but I think it was one of the movies like after I saw it, I remember liking it, and so when it came on TV, I know I recorded it on my VCR, and it was one that I would just you know watch on a Saturday afternoon, or especially during the summer. Um, I, I remember watching it several times and i think i remember just watching it again for the podcast um remember like the parts where the commercials were where i'd try yeah. to pause try, when i record on a vcr back then i would i would watch it i would try to pause at right the just the right uh-huh. moment for the to get come oh, back yeah. at the commercials so uh, oh, i remember that I, how long had it been since you watched it for the podcast oh a good long while in fact because when i when i watched it there were even uh, moments that I forgot. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, just totally and utterly forgot. But no, it's probably been a good decade or so since I had seen it last. Yeah. And th- this isn't one that they really play on TV as much as they used to. Um, I mean, I actually watched this one on AMC. They had it on, on demand on AMC. And because it's PG, I didn't, there really weren't, there really wasn't much to edit out of it. So I didn't feel bad wa- watching it with a few commercials. But, um, but yeah, I can, they did dub. They did dub some of the language. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Because I actually watched it the same. Oh way. yeah. <laughs> so uh, so yeah. So our, it's been a long time since I've watched it from beginning to end. I'm sure if it's been on TV, I've watched you know at least to the next commercial, depending on where it is in the in the story. Um, but it's not one that I've watched in a long time. So yeah, it's I would say it's probably been twenty plus years for me since I've seen it from beginning to oh, end. Wow. So but yeah. All right, so let's. Uh, jump into the story origin and pre-production, which uh, you can add a lot on this because you've actually read the book that it's based on. 
in, uh, I guess, 1981, Canadian novelist W.P. Kinsella wrote a book called Shoeless Joe about a famed baseball outfielder who played for the Major League Baseball in the early 1900s. Apparently, before the beloved novel, there was just a short story. It was called Shoeless Joe Jackson Comes to Iowa and consisted of only 20 pages. The publishing company contacted Kinsella and asked him to turn it into a full novel. He wrote back to the company that he was on board but would need guidance since he had only written short stories before. Little did he know that it would be the first step towards the hit film we now know and love. So, Phil Alden Robinson, the writer and director of Field of Dreams, loved the novel since it was published in 1982. He had been working on a script based on the book for years, frequently consulting Kinsella, the book's author, for advice on the adaptation. Robinson was told by 20th Century Fox that the story was not commercial enough, but despite those setbacks, he finished the script and eventually sold it to Universal. The film was actually shot using the novel's title, Shoeless Joe, but early screen audiences didn't like it because they thought the movie would be about some homeless man based on the title. Eventually, an executive (laughs) decision was made to rename it Field of Dreams. Robinson didn't like the idea, saying he loved the name Shoeless Joe and the book, and that the new title was better suited for one about dreams deferred. On the other hand, Kinsella told him after the matter that his originally chosen title for the book had been The Dream Field, and that the title Shoeless Joe had been imposed by, by the publisher. thought that was pretty interesting. You read the book without getting, I know we'll kind of talk about it as we get in scenes and stuff, but uh, thoughts on the book? It, it's uh, it's not a, it, in my <laughs> opinion, it's not a fun read. Um, right. It kind of right. drags. Uh, there's a lot of it that I just felt like, why, are, why am I being told this? You know, ultimately the the main parts of the movie are all there and I I do feel that they just made the story flow better with the movie, Mm -hmm. but it's a quick read. I want to say that, I mean, it's only, I think it's only 200 and something pages being his first novel coming from a short story. I'm sure he wasn't very, it wasn't going to be a very thick novel for that reason. Yeah. I mean, you could knock it out in, the, you know, two or three days. Yeah, I I was telling Larry before we started recording that I was listening to another podcast about the movie, and uh, someone on that had read the book, and he said that it was it. Uh, some of the sections were drawn out a little bit more than he would have liked, and he said it's not a very fun, you know, like Larry said, not a very fun read. It's it's not a, a action packed kind of book, but I mean, the movie's not very action packed either, so it. It kind of starts with that voiceover and kind of giving you some background information. And then it kind of jumps right into him hearing the voice and things kind of move kind of yeah. quickly. But it's it's not it's, once again, it's not a very action packed kind of movie. It's not meant to be. And there's really not a whole lot of baseball in it either. So, yeah, well, he hears the voice right off the bat in the book. OK, um, I mean, I don't know exactly how many pages, but I know it's it's very quickly. But then you talk about that narration at the beginning. Mm hmm. Imagine that happening like every 20 minutes. That's that's what the book is. Right. He just all of a sudden he goes, this reminded me of this story. Okay. And then he just tells that story. Gotcha. And you're like, why are you telling me this story? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I think that he was the guy on the thing I was listening to was talking about, I guess they really didn't dig too much in the movie about, you know, whether he's crazy or whether he's sane and hearing the voice. But he kind of alluded it in the book. They dived a little bit more into that, and that that kind of slowed down the book for him. That he felt like they they dragged that on a little too long in the book. So I don't know if you remember that or feel that way. No. 
I just know that the book does drag things out more than it needs to be. But again, we'll get into probably some of that as we're talking about scenes and and whatnot. Gotcha. All right, well, let's talk about casting. I got to start with the main character. It's hard to imagine anyone taking on the role of Ray Kinsella than Kevin Costner. And director Robinson and producers Lawrence and Charles Gordon knew that from the very beginning. There was a problem, however, as Costner had just finished making another all-time great baseball movie as they say, Bull Durham. From father to son documentary in the Field of Dreams home release, Robinson explained that after he and the Gordon brothers were told Costner probably wouldn't be interested, they made a list of other actors. Here's the list that, or a few of them from that list. Tom Hanks, Jeff Bridges, Tom Cruise, Harrison Ford, (laughs) Dennis Quaid, and Bruce Willis, just Mm. to name. And there's, I mean, I I edited that down from like 20 names, and there was a lot on there. Uh, These are ones I felt... I could see them in that role, not that I think they would do better. You couldn't see Tom Cruise over the corn, though. Well, look, well <laughs> truth truth be told, that you wouldn't have seen Kevin Costner over the corn if they hadn't built a wooden yeah. uh, step for him to stand on, because they said at that point the uh, the corn stalks were like nine feet, feet tall, and so they had to build yeah they had to build something for him to stand on. So, but yeah, I could definitely see Jeff Bridges, Tom Hanks. I can kind of see yeah in the, you know in the in the '80s Bruce Willis maybe. Uh, uh, but he, he he would have. I'm a huge Bruce Willis fan. Oh, exactly. Yeah, he would have brought too much of that. I mean, he's he's got that kind of smarmy, you know. Yeah, a little more sarcastic. Yeah, it wouldn't yeah. have worked. Yeah, Dennis Quaid. I could see Harrison Ford. I could kind of see. Uh, I think the only one that really would have given him a good run for his money is probably Jeff Bridges, especially in the '80s, because that's kind of. I could see him kind of playing that role. Yeah. Um, as well so i think quaid would have been pretty yeah and quaid would have been good too so so when uh but when costner found out about the movie not only did he agree to join the cast he pushed back an upcoming film shoot to make time for field of dreams a producer from the romantic thriller movie that he signed up for called revenge was especially unhappy the producer threatened to sue the actor but an agreement was made that kevin could start working on revenge right after field of dreams was finished so I think that was a smart choice. I do too, because I've never even heard of Revenge. Oh yeah, I've seen it. Uh, it's very forgettable, and it it they came out. I think I think I think they came out the same year or very close to the same time. And uh, yeah, Revenge was not well loved by audiences, critics, or the box office. So he definitely uh, did the right thing with doing Field of Dreams. So uh, there are multiple Kevin Costner movies where he either plays an aged or rugged professional baseball player or down on his luck yet talented golfer, but this isn't a case where an actor is only pretending to be an athlete. Uh, in the same documentary, director Robinson remembered watching Costner take batting practice at Fenway Park one day when he hit the famed green monster left field wall at the iconic baseball stadium. And while that's not the deepest outfield wall in the majors, at 310 feet from home plate, that's an impressive feat. So are you a big Costner fan, or you have a, any thoughts on Costner's over, his overall filmography? I mean, I wouldn't say I was a big fan. I was, I mean, I, I don't know how many movies he did between, but I know it wasn't too long after. I was a huge fan of Robin Hood. Yes, uh, yeah, I am Growing too. up. Yeah, so, so, yeah, big fan of Robin Hood. Um, and I've liked some of the stuff he's done uh, older. I mean, you'd mentioned baseball, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for love of the game mm-hmm. is actually, you know, kind of a, 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 a nice little kind of chick flick, but pretty good for the for you know a guy to watch <laughs> yeah that's one i've actually never seen i had a good friend of mine that was a big baseball fan 
and he raved about that one. That's just yeah, one I never, I never one. watched. So I have to check it out. Yeah, it's a good one. I, I love. I remember. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I, I remember because mm-hmm. you know he's a pitcher in that one, right? And they, the way that they shoot it um, from his perspective as the kind of the way he sees the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's again just like with this movie. It's it's a you know whoever wrote the story. It's definitely a someone who loves the sport. I can't say I'm like a huge Costner fan. I was a fan of his in the '80s. Of course, like I said, I mentioned. I remember him being in Silverado. Uh, Untouchables was like oh, yeah. one of my favorite yeah. movies. Um, still one of my favorite movies. Um, and then, like you said, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is probably my favorite Robin Hood movie. Um, and then you know he had his he, he you know Dances with Wolves. I remember liking it when I saw it, but I've never been able to watch it again because it's so long. <laughs> yeah, I think I've only seen that one that one once as well. But uh, and speaking of movies that you bought bought at McDonald's, I got that one from McDonald's. I bought I got huh. Dances with Wolves from McDonald's. So there you go. Yeah, I was pretty sure as I was talking, I was going, "Wait a minute, there's a reason why I like For Love of the Game so much." And now I I realize why it was directed by Sam Raimi. Oh, <laughs> wow! I did not yeah. know that. That's yeah. Now I really want to watch it. <laughs> That might be what I watched this weekend. So okay. yeah, which explains that that visual that I was talking about. You know, yeah, that does make Sam Raimi's great at that. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and you can listen more about that in the Evil Dead episode exactly. from exactly. a few weeks ago. If you missed it, go back. It's definitely not a baseball movie, but go for it. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So then uh, Ray's wife Annie was played by Amy Madigan. She was a fan of the book and joined the cast. Uh, actress Sheila McCarthy. And country music superstar turned actress Reba McIntyre auditioned for the part of Annie. Although McCarthy didn't get the role, she and Amy Madigan actually worked together in the John Candy comedy Uncle Buck the same year. I will tell you this. She definitely fits the character yes. from the book. Okay. Well, I, th- I thought she was just the character we saw on screen, and I can't imagine anybody else playing that role. Not that she had a whole lot to do. I mean, her biggest scene is the PTA meeting scene, which is Which pretty is not hilarious. in the book. Oh, it's not. <laughs> no, that's not in the book. No, they now the character is different in that regard. Uh, they don't do the whole where, you know, kind of like former hippie. Oh, okay. You know, she is in the book. Annie is the quintessential, you know, southern country girl. Not mm-hmm. southern, but uh, just yeah, the Iowa farm girl. Right. Um, right. You know, that's what she is. She's got family that's very religious and. Mm-hmm. And all that, and very set in their ways. Gotcha. Um, but but even the way, because I did, uh, you know, go back and kind of skim through the book to try to re- remind myself a bunch of things. When Ray describes, or I don't know if it's really Ray, the narrator, because it's not right. a, not told in the first person. Okay. Um, when Annie is described, I mean, you can picture the actress from the movie. Gotcha. And then Karen, uh, the daughter, that was Gabby Hoffman, who's, I did not know this, the daughter of Andy Warhol superstar Viva Otter Hoffman and soap actor Anthony Herrera. Uh, But she was age, yeah, yeah. uh, But she was age six when she got this role. This was her first movie role, but she had steady work, including roles in, once again, Uncle Buck, who seemed to have the same casting director as this movie. (laughs) She was also in Sleepless in Seattle and the Mel Gibson drama The Man Without a Face in the 80s. And also saw that she's still doing work today. She was in a couple of shows that had uh, girls that was on HBO and another show called Transparent. 
that she's so she's still acting as well. Uh, Terrence Mann, of course, played by Mufasa, Darth Vader himself, <laughs> and Mufasa, James Earl Jones. So in the book, the writer Ray seeks out its real life author J.D. Salinger. When Salinger threatened the production with a lawsuit if his name was used, Robinson decided to rewrite the character as reclusive Terrence Mann. He wrote with James Earl Jones in mind because he thought it would be fun to see Ray trying to kidnap such a big man. Yeah, <laughs> and of course that you know that makes uh, you know, it's not a drastic change from the book. Obviously, with with J.D. Salinger, you you mentioned earlier about whether or not Ray is actually hearing the voices, not hearing the voices and all that. Mm-hmm. And of course there's a lot of kind of tie in and parallel with catcher in the rye. Right. Right. Cause you know, in catcher the rye, the main character, it's whether or not he, you know, he's a, he's not a trustworthy narrator, um, Holden Caulfield, mm-hmm. uh, because you don't actually know how much of what he's telling you is true. There was kind of that parallel there. You can definitely tell that, um, uh, my mind just went blank on the author's name. Um, Kinsella. Kinsella, which is which is Ray's name. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, <laughs> it's the only reason I knew it that quickly. Yeah, you can tell that Kinsella was just a fan of J.D. Salinger. Gotcha. Because I even felt that a lot of the writing, it was just very similar mm-hmm. to uh, Catcher in the Rye and other J.D. Salinger novels that I probably didn't actually read in high school. <laughs> but... Ray does actually have a gun when he quote unquote kidnaps. Oh, okay, Salinger. really? Yeah. Okay, he forgets <laughs> to bring it, but he has a gun. Okay, gotcha. Well, that, that would have been an interesting little, you know, uh, deleted scene that would have been interesting to see. So, but here's an interesting fact about James Earl Jones: he made his debut on Broadway back in 1958 in a production of Sunrise at Campo Bola, Campo Bello, Campo Bolo. Sounds know. good. Sounds good. Uh, that's when he met the actress Anne Seymour, who was one of his castmates. James got to work with Anne again in Field of Dreams when Anne played the Chisholm newspaper publisher. Uh, Anne passed away shortly after the movie was released. Later, James mentioned in an interview how nice it was to work with her one last time. So, And that, uh, that little character is actually from the book, too. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, of course, one of the biggest characters was Shoeless Joe. Robinson had originally envisioned Shoeless Joe Jackson as being played by an actor in his 40s, someone who would be older than Costner and who would thereby act as a father surrogate. Ray Liotta did not fit that criteria, but Robinson thought he would be a better fit for the part because he had the sense of danger, quote-unquote, ambiguity, which Robinson wanted in the character. In real life, Joe Jackson was a soft-spoken, humble southerner, a far cry from the brash New York-accented Ray Liotta. Also in the film, Jackson claims he couldn't stand Ty Cobb. In real life, Cobb and Jackson were very close friends. To prepare for the role of one of the most fearsome hitters in baseball history, Ray Liotta underwent extensive training ahead of the filming, and even even though his batting stance wasn't historically accurate because Chulis Joe batted left-handed, but Liotta batted right-handed, he actually developed a nice swing and presence at the plate. This can be seen upon his first arrival when he nearly wipes out Ray Kinsella, with a hit directly back to the pitcher, often called a comeback. Charles Gordon, again in the documentary, explained that Lyoto was the was the one that hit the ball, and Costner's reaction, although still in character, was genuine. That scene always makes me laugh when he gets hit right back to him. So, I was nice to know that wasn't scripted. Well, especially because it's right it's right when he goes, uh, "Yeah, let's see if you can hit my curveball," and yeah. he just kind of looks at him like, "Okay," and then he he goes, "Okay, yeah, you can hit my curveball." 
comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. Ray's scheming brother-in-law Mark was played by Timothy Busfield, great first name. Although he had been in a hit 80s movie before called Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> yes. Give you mm-hmm. Just give everybody just a second to remember his character there. He was most well-known at the time for his work on the yep. TV show 30-something. My favorite story was Burt Lancaster was unaware that Timothy Busfield was part of the cast and had him fetching water and chairs before realizing Busfield was going to be in the scene with him. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, can I say I totally forgot that that was Burt Lancaster? Totally forgot that was Burt Lancaster. <laughs> uh, which, by by the way, for people who don't know, that's Doc. Doc is Burt Lancaster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I say, Burt Lancaster is not a name that most people would even recognize today. Um, he was probably a little bit more well-known when this came out, even though he was... The classic you know, Hollywood star. Much older. Yeah, exactly. But I'm just saying, he's not like a Humphrey Bogart or a... Uh, Cary Grant. Uh, who else back then? Cary Grant, yeah. Fred Astaire... Uh, one of those kind of names, but yeah, but yeah, he originally turned down the part of Moonlight Doc Graham, but changed his mind after a friend who was also a baseball fan told him he had to work on the film. Uh, my favorite fact here is Jimmy Stewart was originally offered the role, but ultimately decided to pass on it. It has been stated that Stewart turned it down because he didn't want to play a character who died. <laughs> uh, director Robinson said in an interview, "Oh gosh, I wish I'd have been able to talk to him because I would have told him he doesn't." It's already die, dead, sort of. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in Roger Ebert's four-star review of the movie, he said Field of Dreams was the kind of movie Frank Capra would have, would have directed and James Stewart might have starred in. So I gotta be honest, though. The Doc thing is is so weird um, when it comes yeah. to, I guess you'd say, the mythology of this story. The, the mm-hmm. fact that they find out about him, he's already dead, then mm-hmm. Ray... Time travels, kind yeah, of. yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's like, is it a dream he's having? Did he? Is he actually? Right. Gonna, is he actually? Did he actually just time travel walking down the street? Mm-hmm. And then they just they have he has the conversation with the older Doc, and then the next morning they just happen to run into him as uh, he's just all of a sudden. Which again, you go to, but wait. If the ghost can't exist outside of the baseball field, how is mm-hmm. he just walking down the highway as this, you know, younger version of himself? Then, uh, again, it's just he because he gets there and then base. Yeah. Baseball magic has yeah, no limits. And I, I don't know if you want to go ahead and get into the, the part <laughs> at the end when he then decides to give that up. Right, and, but then you realize, but wait, he's he's only giving up being the young version of himself again. He's still a ghost, right? And uh, again, that that was one that I just I was like, I don't quite understand the mythology that's happening here. And it's the same thing with the book. 
Yeah. It's like, I don't get the, I'm not saying that a movie about ghosts that appear in a baseball field in the middle of a cornfield <laughs> is going to have, you know, reality to it. Should but have, I like have such strong logic. Yeah. But I like to have rules, <laughs> you know, there needs to be rules that, right. that it's going to follow. And the part with Doc, as much as I love the part with Doc, mm-hmm. it doesn't maintain the same rules that it seems like every other ghost is having to adhere to. Right. So. Right. I get what you're saying. And I and honestly, I didn't think about it that deeply. But I think this movie is, it, it, it never really digs very deep anyway. And, you know, maybe for good reason, it, it kind of... It, it kind of floats along the surface. And like you said, it's, it's, yeah. it is, it is kind of wishy washy with its rules and yeah. with its mythology. So. Cause when we were watching it, uh, I don't think Bethany had ever seen it. Um, oh, okay. And so we were watching it and I just had to kept telling her, I was like, nothing is explained in this movie. <laughs> like just understand that. Did like, she have questions? There is no explanation. I don't think she did. I think I just said it because I'm thinking it. There it goes. Like, nothing is explained. There is no right. rhyme or reason for anything that happens in this movie. Right. And I'm okay with that. So. <laughs> well, again, it does help it. I, the movie, for being, it's what, just a little over an hour and a half? Like, Yeah, I mean, it's not yeah. long at all. I mean. Which, being based on a book, is pretty rare. I mean, you would think, you know, but again, they try to cramp. There is so <laughs> much in that book. I am so glad they cut so much out of that book. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we got a few more on the casting, real real short here. But The Voice, is, which is what it's called in the credits, The Voice. For years, it was rumored that The Voice belonged to Ray Liotta, mm-hmm. who played Shoeless Joe. Kinsella wrote that he was told it was actually Ed Harris, Amy Madigan's husband. What's funny, uh, this is a quote from Robinson in from June of 2019. He said, what's funny is that a few people who thought they knew have revealed it and gotten it wrong. I'll read people saying, well, I happen to know that it's so-and-so. And I'm like, no, it's not. We'll let that remain a secret. It's a great mystery. And I like that the voice is officially credited as being played by, quote-unquote, himself. Hmm. So they really don't, so nobody really knows who it is. I thought so. it was Ed Harris. I actually, that's what I always, I think yeah. it's even listed in IMDb that it's Ed Harris. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, not that IMDb is a hundred percent accurate because I think they can, it's kind of like Wikipedia. People can get in there, but so anyway, that's its own, that's its own separate conversation. But I, I don't really, honestly, I don't really care who it is. I mean, I just think it's, I think it's kind of cool that we don't really know who it is, but I guess at the end of the movie, I assume that it was, I'm assuming that it was Ray Liotta. I'm assuming yeah. that it was Shoeless Joe speaking to him. Um, and that's just, that's just how I read it. I'm sure, you know, yeah. other people read now, it the, the way that they, they do the ending, which is different from the book, uh, where okay. Shoeless Joe pretty much says it to him, you know, if you build it, mm-hmm. he will come. And, you know, it's referring to Ray's dad. Uh, it does imply very much that it's Ray Liotta. That's another thing. The voice, though, is another thing that's different in the book. Okay. Uh, they make it, you know, pretty clear right off the bat. It's not a whisper. When Ray hears it, when uh, J.D. Salinger hears it, they're hearing a baseball announcer. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a different take. Sure. I mean, I don't necessarily know it to what volume they're hearing it, but they clearly make <laughs> they clearly call him call the voice the announcer. Okay. And so it. It's definitely not a whisper. 
So my question, would it be like a 1930s or 40s? And I was like, hey, if you build it, he will come. Or is it? <laughs> I don't know. That's pretty, yeah. <laughs> Last little tidbit, which I, I kind of went back and forth where to put this in here, but it's just, you know, because I, I, when I first saw it, I was like, that's that's a myth. There's no way that's, that's true. Somebody's just playing a joke. But I found it in several sources. So then unknowns. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were among the thousands of extras in the Fenway Park scene and are uncredited. Over a decade later, when Phil Adam Robinson welcomed Affleck on the set of The Sum of All Fears in 2002, Affleck said to him, nice working with you again. Robinson asked, what do you mean, again? And Affleck explained the connection. So there's that little, last little casting tidbit. Okay. I mean, it very well could be true, knowing how big of a Red Sox fan he is. Yeah. yeah, it could have just been at the game. And yeah, the night, the day or night, whatever that they filmed. Oh yeah, yeah, because they were definitely filming during a game for sure. Mm-hmm. So, all right, cool. All right, well, let's uh, transition into favorite or iconic scenes, which I think this one might have both. In this one, so, yeah. Favorite scene? Uh you know, honestly, as well. Again, if we're, we're going favorite versus the I always like to just go with the scene that always is in my head and it honestly is as sad as it is it's mm-hmm. when uh Karen falls off the oh yeah the bleachers, the bleachers. yeah and then Doc you know steps over the threshold mm-hmm. and and saves her and whatnot that scene has always like you you say the field of dreams that is the scene that I vividly remember <laughs> right right um I won't necessarily say it's you know a, a great scene um, yeah. Of the, the the circumstance circumstances, yeah. Yeah. But you know, but definitely a a a memorable scene. I think for favorite scene, I mean, uh, there's a couple of scenes, and it's hard to pick a favorite on this one because it, I, I guess like for me, it's like the emotional scenes. What what scenes you know kind of tuck at the heartstrings for me? And there's a few. I like the scene, even though we were talked about how you know wonky the the logic is, but when Ray is talking to Doc in his office and he's telling the story about what it's mean, what it, what it would have been like to, you know, feel the crack of the bat and, you know, running the bases and all that kind of stuff. Just, just those kind of nostalgic moments. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that scene a lot. Um, and then I'll, I, you know, I say, I can't say I like that scene that when, uh, the daughter falls off, but yeah. the whole build up to it like that, that whole scene in itself is a great scene. The brother-in-law comes in and you know, walks he, walks in walks front of her. The, I, yeah, I, I love yeah. that too. Just walks through the game because yeah, he can't see yeah. anything. Yeah, I love that. And and they're like, you can't see him. And then you know the daughter's making her her statement. And then of course you get James or Jones gives his, you know, it's yeah they will come Ray they will come mm-hmm. you know then baseball you know that and that whole monologue, uh, which I thought was cool that when he when uh, James or Jones read the script. His wife read it with him, and she's he was like, "This, you know, this is a great scene, but I'm not sure how I want to do it because I want it to sound too preachy." And his wife said, "Don't worry about it because that scene will never make the final cut. They'll cut, they'll cut that speech for sure." <laughs> well, I mean, that speech is almost word for word, word for straight word. out of the book. Um, yeah. It's a lot. I mean, I know it's right there at the end, but it's a mm-hmm. lot closer to the actual end. Oh, okay, of, um, the, of the book because the moment. J.D. Salinger finishes that speech. Mm-hmm. A car pulls up. Okay, and then you you get the the line of cars. 
Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, they gotcha. don't have the whole moment with the dad. I mean, we can. I don't know if you want to talk about the dad now. Or we can talk about yeah. it later. Well, that that um, was going to be. I mean, that's that's probably my favorite. You know, that's that's the scene that gets you when you know when. Oh he, yeah. When he sees his dad and he realizes, oh, the he that the voice was talking about was not Shoeless Joe. It was my father, and now I have this moment to introduce him to my family and to yeah. have this moment that I, I wish I would add. And they make inst- that so much more powerful in the movie than it is in the book. Gotcha. Yeah. Because uh, I guess we'll go ahead and talk about it now. Yeah, go for it. Because in the book, um, as soon as he, as Ray meets Shoeless Joe and Shoeless Joe is talking about, hey, I'll bring some other guys, Ray immediately says, hey, I, there's a pit, there's a catcher I want you to bring. And it's a mm-hmm. whole, it's a goal of Ray to get his dad there. Oh, okay. And gotcha. then his dad does show up. Mm-hmm. And but Ray and Ray knows he's there. He th- Ray knows he's the catcher in the game. Mm-hmm. And Ray just chooses. He he doesn't feel right speaking to him yet. And so it's this whole thing of watching his dad, but not being able to to have the nerve to go talk to his dad and and all. Mm-hmm. And they do have the moment, but like I said, because it's something you already know about from the beginning that he's trying to mm-hmm. meet with his dad. It doesn't have that impact that it does in the movie gotcha yeah that's interesting i mean it makes sense i mean it's a good story it's a good story angle to to, to do it in, especially for the book so but yeah i think i, I would like the movie in the movie version better for mm-hmm. sure there was uh, a few scenes that are, are things in the book that are omitted from the from the movie and you can you know test this as well in the novel we're introduced to eddie kid sissons the previous owner of the raised farm uh, there's also an elderly Iowan. Sissons claims to be the oldest living Chicago Cub, but soon enough, Ray learns he never suited up for the team. Robinson said it was a wonderful subplot, but we couldn't find room for it. Another character cut out of Robinson's screenplay was Richard Kinsella, Ray's identical twin brother. <laughs> so glad they got rid of him. That is the most pointless, <laughs> pointless side story in the entire book. Okay, yeah, it didn't go and go. It didn't go into too much. Uh, about it so but there was a scene that some other guys were talking about that in the book that one of the guys said he wished would have been in the movie and i guess it's a scene that takes place in a diner where i guess uh it was about to be robbed and ray decides to strike up a conversation about baseball and kind of diffuse the situation and it kind of reiterated the point of terrence Mann's or in the book jd salinger's uh talk about baseball it's you know it's the best of us it's something we can all relate to and and, and uh, something we all have in common kind of a thing. So, I don't know. You remember that? Actually, yeah. That no, I don't actually remember that scene. I was sitting here going, well, okay. I mean, there is a lot more to there. I mean, there's kind of like a whole little road trip story with him, mm-hmm. you know, with them, okay. them driving back from. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, from, you know, going to Boston to the, to the, to the game, which, by the way, J.D. Salinger isn't living in Boston like uh, Terrence Mann was. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember exactly where he. I want to say maybe New Hampshire or it could okay. have even been New York. Um, and so then they drive to Boston, then they drive to Minnesota, then they drive back to Iowa. And so there's this whole point in the middle of the book, or I guess towards the beginning, whatever, where it is this you know road trip almost mm-hmm. with them and stuff that uh happens along the way and you know i'm not 
saying that scene didn't happen. I just, I honestly don't remember that. <laughs> I scene. remember it. <laughs> yeah. Now the the Eddie Sisson stuff, I, mm-hmm. that I I will say I think if they could have put that in the movie, it would have added a whole nother level of emotion. Okay. Um, I can see maybe why they didn't. Maybe just because of time. Maybe they didn't want to build another a whole nother character. Mm-hmm. You know, because you already got uh, obviously Ray and then Terrence Mann character and Doc mm-hmm. and Eddie just would have been a whole nother character you have to build. Um, but it, it's a great little story that pretty much goes all all the way up to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Eddie is the guy that they buy the farm from, but then later he uh, Ray gets him to come and help. Um, and you find out how much Eddie, you know, not only loved the farm, but of course loved baseball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you said, he claimed to be with the uh, Chicago Cubs and Ray, Ray knows immediately that he's lying. Okay. Um, because he talks about playing in Wrigley field in, you know, 1908, 1909, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And Ray knows Wrigley field wasn't open, <laughs> you know, it, mm-hmm. uh, yet. Gotcha. And so he immediately knows that ultimately, um, and of course Eddie is, I think like 90 something years old. Okay. Um, he, he dies. Um, he's staying with Ray in his house and, uh, it's JD Salinger goes, um, to get him in the morning and he doesn't answer. He opens up the door and Eddie's dead. Hmm. And they talk about how it's like he knew that he had come back there to die. And when they find him, you know, on the bed, uh, dead, he is actually wearing the old Chicago Cubs uniform. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, there's a lot that goes along even just with his death, but ultimately the, you find out that he put in his will that he wanted to be buried in that cornfield and Ray agrees to it. And, when they're about to have the the service, the you know Shoeless Joe and the other players say, "Hey, we would like to you know we want to attend." Mm-hmm. And Ray realizes, "Well, you can't because it's about fifty yards, you know, away from the the field." Mm-hmm. It's actually J.D. Salinger who says, "Well, what if we bring the you know the funeral to you?" And so they end mm-hmm. up actually burying him on the baseball field. Oh wow! Okay. And uh, to me, that's it's a great moment in the book. Uh, you know, it's got a little bit of humor in it because you know, of course, Ray's like, "I've spent all this time and money on this baseball field, and we're just about to dig a giant <laughs> hole in it." And I, right, I, I right. want to say there's even a, a kind of a reference after they bury him that uh, they. Because I think they bury him in left field, which is where Shoeless Joe plays. And I want to say okay. that there's there's even a reference to they play a game after the funeral. And mm-hmm. Joe just has to play around this mound that's now <laughs> in the field. Uh, but I, again, I think it would have been a, a great little story. Uh, I, you know, I wouldn't have minded another 20 minutes just to kind of throw that character yeah. in and have that moment. Um, but again, I'm not upset with this movie at all. So, but no, the yeah. stuff with the brother, the twin brother, 
Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> there, I mean, yeah, they bring in this thing where you find out he's got a twin brother and they are exactly identical. And oh, my God, the story that he tells about <laughs> how they're identical. Like, I'm just sitting there going, okay. why are you telling me all of this? Um, because it gets descriptive as to how identical they okay. are. I'll let you fill in the gap there. Okay. Yeah, I have a feeling yeah. where you're going. and I, Yeah, that doesn't need to no. be discussed. And... <laughs> He says the only difference is a scar. This like the only difference is a scar uh, that the 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 brother Richard um, has. Mm-hmm. But then they Richard shows up, and they kind of imply that Richard is hearing the announcer voice, and so that's what okay. brought him back because they haven't seen each other since they were fifteen. Oh wow! Okay. Richard literally ran away and joined the circus, and so there's even this whole scene of where Ray goes and visits the circus and hmm. and it's just pointless. He serves no purpose. He doesn't move the plot gotcha. forward at all. He does not <laughs> I, again serves absolutely no purpose. I had no problem with them getting rid of this random twin brother. Gotcha. Alright, one one last thing for about the difference in the book that I saw was there's a fence in the book. A gate. At the back of the mm-hmm. the, the field. A gate. So, um, and director said that they were trying to make it work. He had his team make drawings of fences and walls, but in the end, however, it made it more sense to Robinson not to build a fence. So the corn ended up being the wall for them to walk walk through, which I think was. Oh yeah, no, was I, good I love that well, so. the the book. The thing about the book with the ball field itself is the book doesn't mm-hmm. really kind of give you an idea of what the ball field actually looked like, and it's. You know at the very beginning. So, to, so another kind of big difference is when he builds the field, he actually only builds left field because that's where okay. he because he knew he was building it for Shoeless Joe and that's where Shoeless Joe played. So he right. he builds home plate and back to left field, and he even builds a wall mm-hmm. on the left field at the end of left field and bleachers. Okay. And when Shoeless Joe shows up for the first time. Uh, Ray sits in those bleachers and has the conversation with Joe from the bleachers. They don't do the whole hit, oh, okay. him hitting to him and all that. Like he's actually mm-hmm. watching Joe play a game. Like they do this thing, and this is throughout the the movie when a game is happening, it's the full game. Mm-hmm. And there is even a, there's like a ghostly crowd. And you hear, you oh, okay. can, they said, they talk about how you can smell the peanuts and the, you know, the hot dogs and they can hear an announcer. And, but really with the exception of Shoeless Joe, and, you know, of course they do refer to the other eight. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, the other players are kind of just forms, like they're just missed, like they don't really have defining features. Uh, it's only, you know, okay. a certain handful of them that are "quote unquote" physical ghosts. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a whole different aspect. But when it comes to that gate, it kind of implies that now Ray does keep building more of the field. Uh, Joe says, "Hey, you know, if you'll if you'll build more of the field, I'll bring more guys." And they kind of imply that as he like finishes second base, the ghosts that played second base shows up and as he finishes. Right. Right. So it's almost implied that there is a full wall. Like there's a stadium. 
it's not just this small mm-hmm. little baseball field. Like he pretty much builds mm-hmm. a mini stadium, and mm-hmm. it almost reads like there is a wall. Uh, no stands. Um, the only bleachers are I think they they do ble- build the bleachers like in the movie that's right off of the foul line. Right. Uh, but then, like I said, there's that set of raised bleachers in left field. But sometimes the book kind of makes it sound like there is still a wall going all the way across and that this is a gate in the wall, you know, in center field. Mm-hmm. And as they, you know, they leave, they exit through the gate. And of course the other side is just the corn. Mm-hmm. And so they do just disappear right. as they go through the gate. And, and then there's even this whole thing of the lights in the stadium. When the lights come on, Mm-hmm. The lights are part of the supernatural element when the lights, the lights turn themselves on. So you don't have like in the movie where you see Annie, you know, turn the, turn the lights on for right. them. The mm-hmm. lights come on when the ghosts are coming out of the gate. Okay. And then when they go in, the lights go off. Yeah. Mm. And so, okay. but no, I love the effect of them, you know, fading, fading away. Into, yeah. I, I even thought for 1989, it's still a pretty good little effect. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, even the even the shot we talked about before with Doc when he kind of somewhat transforms in his older self. I mean, it's it's pretty decent, especially for 1989. Yeah. Now, if they, you know, if they had made that movie with more advanced technology, the way that that happens in the book is it it starts to happen the moment he starts walking forward. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he that just would have been cool. like they they even describe like his mm. glove turns into his doctor's bag. Oh, nice. And yeah, like he, it's it's like a metamorphosis that is mm-hmm. happening as he's walking forward. You see mm. the younger um, you know, Midnight doc. Moon Knight, excuse me. You see the younger version turn into the older doc. Um so, yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously, effects weren't that great in 1989, but, and I like that they didn't try anything, that it's just the feet. You just see mm-hmm. his feet. That was yeah, all you see. Yeah. You see the feet stand over, they do a little dissolve, mm-hmm. and I like that. You know, don't try for anything that yeah. would have made it cheesy looking. Yeah. So, I was good with it. This is a fairly small movie, and it wasn't meant to be like a big, I mean, they didn't expect it to be a big blockbuster hit. And we'll get that. We'll get into more of that as we get into the box office. I can see where they they spent money where they needed to. I think the the baseball yeah. field was enough, and then you get Costner, you get James Earl Jones, you get I guess Lancaster may not have been a big price tag, but the they uh but they put a lot of money into that field. I know that. I won't get into the the, the, the yeah. numbers, but well, and going back to the ball field, I do think it's much better that they just go ahead and have him just build the entire mm-hmm. field. And not have the whole that he's he's constantly working on the field, <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, there's even a moment when, because that's this is another thing about the movie. The movie doesn't really relay like how much time yeah, is passing. Yeah, they have that one scene where you see it's Christmas, so you know it's kind of gone from spring yeah. to the next or summer to the next spring. So, but that's the only time you really yeah. see where there's been a lot of time passed. Yeah, the book implies a lot more that there is a lot of okay. time that passes. Uh, passes by and when and as I mentioned earlier when uh, JD Salinger and Ray and then obviously Doc joins them when they're on their little road trip when they return they've been gone for so long that the 
the field is actually kind of in disarray, know, in bad yeah. shape. You know, they actually they there's a whole thing of them cleaning it up mm-hmm. uh, with doc, and even with the ghost helping. <laughs> I mean, they even have a whole conversation where the ghosts are talking about uh, trying to help him uh, earn the money. They're like, uh, sell your machines. Mm-hmm. You know, you've now got ten men here <laughs> who can you know help you tend to this uh, you know to this farm. Mm-hmm. And but yeah, no, I, I much better like the let's just have the field there. Not, I think the the wall, even the third, uh, the third, the uh, uh, left field wall with the bleacher. Mm-hmm. I just I think that would wouldn't have worked. I I love yeah. the way they did it. They kept it basic with mm-hmm. that one. Although part of me does ask, where are all these people gonna sit that are showing up at the end? <laughs> yeah, I did have that same thought. I was like, uh, there's not a whole. I mean. And then it's like you've got all those cars. I know we're jumping all the way to the very end, but you have all those cars. It's like they're, you know, it be, it's great. I mean, it's a great, nice, you know, visual, but the, the logic of it is like they can't all see it tonight. I mean, it's already dark, so, you know. Yeah. The ghosts have already chose to le- leave. Like, they just <laughs> <Yeah>. left. <laughs> they all just left. Right. And uh, But they're just coming to see a, a, a baseball field in the, in the corn, a baseball yeah. field in the cornfield. Yeah, where but, are they going to park? Where are they going to mm-hmm. sit? Yeah, yeah, where are they going to park, yeah. Because yeah, they only made a bleachers for what, maybe fifty people, maybe. Ooh, I think that would be pushing it, but yeah, yeah, yeah twenty, maybe twenty, thirty. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's uh, wrap up uh, some of the scenes. With so the last scene, of course, is the big emotional scene where he sees his dad. But this is a uh, little, little trivia that I, I had to put in here. So, uh, the director Phil Robinson wanted very little said between Ray Kinsella's character and his father's ghost in the last scene. He originally wrote and shot it to have Ray playing catch himself as he was about to introduce the ghost of his father to his wife. Preview audiences were either confused about who the character was or thought Ray was cruel for not acknowledging their relationship. Robinson added the line, Hey Dad, you want to have a catch? In post, and it tested very well. So, You know, in the movie, even when he has that line, mm-hmm. it, you can't really tell that his dad is acknowledging yeah. that he called him Dad. Yeah. Uh, he does not let him know who he is in the book. Okay. Because uh, and there's a whole explanation. He even says, you know, hey, he's just a kid with you know whole future ahead of him. You know, mm-hmm. I think that he even talks about hasn't even met my mom yet. Uh, you know, and all that. So he doesn't. He entered. He they still do the introduction mm-hmm. when he does decide to talk to him and and all, but he doesn't let him know like, hey, this is your, you know, I'm your yeah. son. This is your granddaughter. Yeah. A little bit about the ball field. The studio built the baseball diamond on an actual farm in Dyersville, Iowa. After the filming was completed, the family that owned the farm kept the field and added a small hut with inexpensive souvenirs for sale. As of 2018, visitors were free to come to the field and play baseball as they please between April and November. Yeah, and I think they've talked about, you know, people just come because of that just, last scene just to play yeah, catch. Yeah, just to play catch. Yeah. 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 Which, There's again, a- only in the, the movie. That's not from the book. <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? 
Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagney with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes. All right, well, let's talk about box office and critical reception. This is going to be pretty short. Uh, Universal scheduled Field of Dreams to open in the U.S. on April 21st, 1989. The film debuted in just a few theaters and was gradually released to more screens so that it would have a spot among the summer blockbusters. Um, I actually saw that the week that it opened, I think it came in 13th in the smallest uh, number of theaters, but it was like it had the best theater average or average of theaters, like a uh, best gr- uh, gross and average of theaters, but it was beat out by Major League oh, <laughs> that week. So, so, but it ended up playing all the way until December. With a total box oh, wow. office haul of over $64 million, it actually placed 14th in the top grossing movies of 1989. So, hmm. did little little movie that could, did really well. And uh, I watched an interview with Kevin Costner when he was talking about when he was having his kind of spat with the producers for Revenge. And he kept calling it, I'm, I'm going to make this movie about corn. Like, he kept talking <laughs> about it was a corn movie, not a baseball movie. And I'm like, you're crazy. They're, they're, no, you'll never make any money making a movie about corn. So I just thought that was funny that he kept calling it the corn movie. Rotten Tomatoes has it as an 87% on the tomato meter with an 86 audience score. IMDb has it 7.5 out of 10 with a 57 on Metacritic, which I think Ooh. is outrageous. Yeah. No, uh, I, uh, yeah, no, definitely 80s. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not the greatest movie of all time, but it is a joy to watch. Yeah, exactly. And it's very rewatchable too. I mean, yeah. that, that that that's my big thing is if it's a movie that I can you know, I can watch over and over again and still kind of especially this one still have those same emotional pulls and the same feels. I think it does really well. And I think yeah. I think it holds up well too. Uh, there's not there's not much in it that dates it. Um, no, other really. than other than if you realize the gap between World Series scandal yeah, and oh, you know yeah, the yeah. stuff he talks about at the end. If you realize the mm-hmm. gap between there, you can kind of date it. And then, of course, there is the the time travel to 1972. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I agree. Other than that, yeah, you don't really know when this is happening. Yeah, I know the book is supposed to be happening in 1979. Okay, um, and I think obviously they had to adjust some of that because mm-hmm. even I think in the book Doc died in the 50s right right instead of the 70s yeah, yeah and those because if you really think yeah. about it if he was around you know during the the same time that shoeless joe and all that was around but yet he died in 1972 i mean you are talking about doc was an old man <laughs> right right exactly yeah there was i think the only other thing i would say that dates it is when you know they would have known that doc had passed away because they could have gone on their phone and google you know we have that kind of information now instead he did the he went to the library got the little microfiche or whatever and read the old articles and stuff but that that's such a small little scene that's the only thing i would think that would you know kind of date it but 
but it's a it's a universal story. Um, I heard it said that I agree. I think it's it's a it's a love story about a man to his family, a man for his father, and a man to his into baseball. So it's it's got multi a lot of different layers to it, and so uh, I enjoyed it. I still enjoy it. I I'll, I'll I can't say it's in my top ten no. of movies, but it's definitely higher on the list than a lot of other movies. Um, and maybe maybe it's in the top ten of like my eighties movies. Maybe maybe I don't know. Pretty high though. It would be in my top ten if I were to rank it in a sports movie. It would be in my top ten. Of oh, sports definitely. Movies. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would put it over Bull Durham. Yeah, I definitely would put it over Bull Durham. And once again, I I feel like I need to watch Bull Durham again because it's been so long since I've seen it. I don't really remember it. I just remember when I watched it the first time. I didn't understand why people liked it so much. Yeah, so. I'm with you. Yeah, <laughs> I don't really get it. I don't get why it's such a favored movie. All right, man. Well, this has been a good conversation about Field of Dreams. Glad to have you on as always. So uh, as many of you know, Laramie hosts is the creator and host of the Moving Panels podcast. So definitely check out uh, that when you get a chance. And uh, you probably heard an ad about it during this episode. So I won't have him regurgitate <laughs> all that information one more time. <laughs> so, all right. Any final thoughts on Field of Dreams, Laramie? I do not. I think I'm pretty much... Uh pretty much set so whenever you got another movie that uh, was based on a book just let me know (laughs) i will all right thanks everybody for listening we'll catch you guys next time thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s flick flashback podcast if you'd like to continue the conversation we have a few ways for you to do just that one way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com you can also leave us a voice message to the anchor app you can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. If you do leave us a message, we may just use it in an upcoming mini-episode. Another way to reach us is through the new 80s Flick Flashback Podcast Facebook page, as well as our Movie Views Instagram. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating, leave us a stellar written review, and go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into this episode. That's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s Flick Flashback. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.